Hello again, and welcome to another episode of Only the Penitent Shall Pass podcast. I'm your host, Kenneth. Alongside me, co-host, engineer, Master John Fellas. Hello, I've John. been promoted. <laughs> we definitely needed an engineer. The quality has increased. I, I'm really not doing much, to be honest. I just sort of set, set it up and tweak a few things, and here we are. Well, fortunately, my engineer and co-host is humble, and that, that's helpful to be a good engineer. Welcome again to another episode of Only the Penitent Shall Pass podcast. Uh, you can always reach us at onlythepenitent at protonmail.com. And we always appreciate you telling our, your friends, relatives, your neighbors, your local politician, your local pastor, your local deacon. And if you're still on social media, which is unfortunate, uh, share us. Yeah, so share us with all those people and more and tell them about our website, onlythepenitent.com. Easiest way to tell people about us. All of our podcasts are uploaded straight to the website as well as on iTunes and other platforms. Uh, but uh, it's one of the easier ways. Just tell people, hey, I listen to a podcast. These two people are interesting or maybe you don't like us at all. You could tell people, hey, I listen to this podcast and I can't stand the people talking. Tell them that we're awful yeah, and they should listen to us and argue with them in their own heads. I, I've heard it said that any news is, or any publicity is good publicity. So, but Is that true still? Not at all. No, no. It, it seems like that sort of went out the window. It went out the window when Kevin Spacey lo- lost his movie career. <laughs> yeah, well, that's sort of what all started this, huh? <laughs> I don't know if that was the key one, but it was definitely uh, one of the early events that was connected. But that's not the subject of today's episode. It's not the woke culture or uh, the Me Too movement. Today's subject is a question. The question is, is Rome America or is America Rome? Uh, not a new question. There's actually lots of articles, um, books about the subject. Uh, it's actually a very common conversation people have who study ancient Rome and live in America or are familiar with United States of America. Um, people are curious about that, uh, because they see similarities between ancient Rome and the United States of America. Uh, both world superpowers and, and others. And that, that's what we're going to discuss today. Uh, the philosopher George Santayana, uh, probably very famous quote, people know it, don't know that everyone knows who said this originally. Uh, Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And so I think that's what also John leads people to asking the question, is America Rome? Because we know what happened to Rome. It was eventually destroyed, invaded by the Goths and the Vandals, and fell into ruin. It came back as a city eventually, but it was never the great city that it once was. And so I think for many people, especially with the events of 2020 and 2021, people are wondering, is, Rome, is America Rome? Are we headed towards the same conclusion as Rome? Well, spoiler alert, all civilizations end. So this is a sort of common knowledge to the students of history. And I think the question is more us trying to predict, well, when is it going to end? How much time do we have left? Maybe we have hundreds of years. Sometimes it feels like we have less than 100 weeks. And, And so I think it's... I think it's tough to find a good way to approach the question, but if we keep that in mind, that, well, nothing can last forever because ultimately we're all destined to a heavenly kingdom. Right, Kenny? The um, philosopher, uh, I guess he's a lay philosopher, but he was, he's pretty, he, he was a, um, he fought in World War I, and he was actually uh, from Great Britain, but he served in the Jordanian military for many years, wrote many, many books about life in the Arab world from a British perspective. Uh, John, Sir John Glubb, uh, he died uh, a while back, if I remember correctly. I recently found a paper of his that I had read when I was very young, and I hadn't read it in a long time. I'd been looking for it. 
Um, and one of the things he suggests is that the typical empire lasts about 250 years. Um, there's exceptions to the rule, but, but in general, the general idea throughout history is that the, the current world superpower, whoever it is, yeah, lasts about 10 generations. Generations, about 20, 25 years. Lasts about 250 years, give or take. It seems to be the life cycle of a nation. And you get to that 250-year period, 260-year period, and Sir John Glubb points out that there's a lot of similarities between all the ancient superpowers when they get to that twilight, when they get to that end of the line. And I think that's what people see in America is a lot of similarities with ancient Rome as Rome was getting to the end of the line. In the beginning, Rome, you know, I'm not defending what Rome did morally. <laughs> I'm not defending them invading nations and murdering people and raping and pillaging. Don't, don't get me wrong, I'm not defending those things. But one of the interesting things, and, and if anyone has an opportunity to read uh, uh, John uh, Glubb's paper, it's, uh, let me get the title for it, because it, it is well worth reading. I've read it multiple times over the years. Um, and it, it, the title is The Fate of Empires. But one, one, um, one amongst the hundreds or dozens and dozens and dozens of analogies he makes is that the Roman Empire, when the military was in its infancy, when Rome was in its infancy as a nation, they would build structures to defend themselves while they were sleeping. Um, but they weren't very defensive at all. In fact, the enemies could just break in and, and invade them pretty easily. And as time went by in the Roman Empire, um, their structures became more and more defensive. Uh, they would, at night, before they'd go to sleep, they'd build huge walls. And they would rely on those walls. Whereas in the beginning of their society, the beginning of their empire, they weren't, carried, they weren't worried about defense. They were such an aggressive, young, <laughs> forceful people. They were like, if anyone tries to break into our camp, we're just going to attack them and destroy them. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Well, the Romans, maybe they weren't the most moral people in the sense that you were using the word, but they had a lot of heroic virtue. They had a lot of courage. And so I wonder if that's sort of what's going on there, that by the end of the empire, that courage had ran out in the virtues that Rome had, the things that made them excel in the world were just gone. And maybe we could find certain analogs in America um, to, the, to the same effect. I, I don't know if our greatest virtue would be courage. I, I don't know. What, what do you think? What would be our greatest virtue? I'm thinking maybe our freedom, which seems to be running out quite rapidly. If the Americans no longer want to be free, well, what is that doing to our empire? Um, it might be something else. That was the first thing that came to my mind. Um, you're 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 asking like, what is our current national identity? I'm, I'm, I'm... No, no. What what sort of excellence does did America have that enabled us to grow this powerful? Oh, this large. Yeah. What yeah. is it? And are we losing something? Are we losing that excellence? And so the thing that came to my mind was freedom, but it might be something else. Well, yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, in, the, in the beginning, uh, we know that America was founded by adventurers and conquerors and some good, some bad. We don't have to rehash all of the different conquistadors and all the people that came here. Um, and once we became a country, too, we still were a, when we were a young nation, we were a nation of adventurers going out into the vast West where there's Indians and famine and tough storms. And you think of the Oregon Trail, people dying in snowstorms and, 
and just people just wanting to go out and adventure and explore and regardless of what people think about what went on with the native indians the native americans and you know in the u.s government let's not go there at the moment um the point being we is, just got canceled uh, but the, the point being is that early in our in our history we weren't really concerned with defense we were concerned with expansion that's similar with rome's early history they were concerned with expansion as we became more and more of a settled society now we're very much about defense building walls and i'm, I'm not trying to get into a political discussion about whether border walls is what we should focus on. Um, but 150 years ago, America wasn't really concerned with a border wall with Mexico. Um, you know, people in, in that part of the country would have just picked up their gun and gone to war. I mean, there's a difference. We're very defensive now, right? So it sounds like if we wanted to keep our empire, we would have to continue expanding in some way well I'm, and i'm not suggesting that i'm just making observations no i'm not saying that you're if in support I, of I'll, that I'll, I'll read john glove for from what he says history however seems to suggest that the age of decline of a great nation is often a period which shows a tendency to philanthropy and to sympathy for other races he says this phase may not be contradictory to the feeling described that the dominant race has the right to rule the world. So he says another, another mark of decline in civilization is actually a, a, a rise in philanthropic. I, I got tongue-tied there. <laughs> no, you, you said it, philanthropic. Yeah. Philanthropic yeah, uh, endeavors. It. Because the great nation, the world superpower, they now think, well, you know, we have so much, we need to take care of other people. And then they start saying to themselves, wow, well, we are so much, we, you know, we've come from, so, you know, we, 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 we have all of these things. It's not fair that this other race over here, this other people over here uh, is disadvantaged. And in the last 40, 50 years, like this has been a huge theme in America. Um, and I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just making the observation that a lot of people think American culture is in decline. And a sign of decline in, in world superpowers in the past is usually, usually where the people start to hate themselves. The dominant superpower, the citizens, begin to despise themselves and what they are and seem to go towards the weaker peoples, the, the less advantaged people, and say those need to be our heroes, which is kind of a strange thing. Well, there's something, it's probably a poor political principle if you're trying to maintain an empire. But on the other hand, we as Christians, who do we give great honor to? Very humble men who a lot of times didn't fight, who were taken, were killing. I'm thinking of the martyrs. I'm thinking of St. Paul, St. Peter. So maybe if people want to return to biblical principles, which I hopefully people will in the near future, this can be a good jumping off point. Because obviously our goal isn't to be great imperial citizens above the fact that we're Christian. I, I think our, our patriotism should always come second, right? Uh, I think we should always be Christians first. It's always a little bit disconcerting when people... Uh put their patriotism over the exactly. relationship that, with God. Exactly, that's what I'm saying, yeah. The, in, another, um, another thing that we actually see um, in, in empires that begin to go in decline, according to John Club, in his essay, The Fate of Empires, which is many decades old now, is that um, education begins to be associated with money rather than learning and passing down uh, theological ideas, uh, rather than passing down important cultural things from the history of one's ancestors. Education becomes associated with money. And we know, obviously, in our day, you know, education is almost all about career and money. People choose vocations which will pay the most. I mean, we've, we've I think we've talked about that on our podcast. Um, John Glove points out some really interesting things about um, 
uh, Arab societies, uh, he points out uh, the Arab uh, moralist Ghazali in 1000 uh, AD. He writes about 1000, about 1100 AD, he writes. And he complains. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read John Glove here. Uh, Ghazali complains in the very same words of the lowering of objectives in the declining Arab world. Students, he says, this is, a, this is an Arab writing a thousand years ago. He says, students, he says, no longer attend school to acquire learning and virtue, but to obtain those qualifications which will enable them to grow rich. This, now, that's, that's crazy. An Arab living in the time of the decline in his culture is saying the same thing about students a thousand years ago. It sort of destroys the. It sort of destroys the reason why we think we're going to school to gain these qualifications, because we think that technology and society is so complicated in advance that you can't actually participate in society or work with the technology unless you go to school and obtain some sort of advanced education. But it seems that based on what you're saying is this is always something that happens at the end of an empire. He Glub goes on to say that the ambition of the young were once engaged in the pursuit of adventure and military glory and then in the desire for the accumulation of wealth and then it turns to the acquisition of academic honors. And so what he says is as the as the empire declines the youth, especially the young men, he says, so in the beginning, they start out, it's about adventure, it's about, it's about um, military glory. That transitions over the years into wealth. Now, now the young men just want to be wealthy, they want to grant. He says it, it culminates in a bunch of ivory tower thinkers. Now, he says, when, when, the, when the culture gets to complete decline, the young men, they want to sit around and intellectualize. They want to sit around and philosophize. And that, I remember when I read this, you know, over two decades ago, maybe 25 years ago, I, was, I think I was a teenager when I first read this. I thought, well, wow, I love to intellectualize. I love to philo- philosophize. And I, and, and I always said, well, I, there needs to be some kind of balance between me participating in the decline of the young men and at the same time, having interesting conversations on a podcast, because he Glub went and he went and looked at the Mongol Empire. He went and looked at, uh, I think he looked at twenty different empires that were all in decline, and he saw this transition in all of them, where they always ended up with young men who just wanted to sit around and talk. And isn't that interesting? That's kind of where we are, both in the in the woke culture and in the conservative in in in. in on both sides of our society, you have lots of young men, whether they're in the conservative evangelical world, where they're one of the criticisms, I'm jumping ahead of myself, John. One of the criticisms of the evangelical world is they don't do anything, right? They don't, they don't make great works of art. You were talking to me about earlier today. You know, where are the evangelical Christians making great works of art, making great movies that are, that are masterpieces, making great sonnets? In fact, if I can go out on a limb, one of the most common things about evangelicals is that their movies suck, that the acting is bad, that their art sucks. Uh, I, I, I'm trying not to be too overly dramatic, but John, I've had, I, I haven't had 10 people tell me that. I've had hundreds of people tell me that. Yeah, when you talk to someone who's not a Christian who's seen maybe one Christian movie, they're literally shocked by how bad it was, how almost yeah. every line was a cliche or some sort of bit of propaganda. And so like, Christians are supposed to have such a rich view of God, of creation, of everything that exists, that we should be able to create beautiful things. But it doesn't seem like that's the case anymore, but maybe it's, that seems to be the common trend. Like It seems to be that the art is getting worse rather than better. So it's not just a Christian thing. 
it seems to be a problem in our society in general. Now, now in every nation, you just like Rome or ancient Persia or ancient Babylon or fill in the blank, uh, uh, you always have other competing bar. Sometimes they're called barbarians. Sometimes they're, they're, there's different words for them. There's always other subsets of culture, subgroups of people, subgroups of races, whatever symbol or word you want to give it that exists concurrently with the superpower. So one of the subsets of American culture right now is, is defined with the acronym BLM, right? Now, BLM, as we know, and Antifa, as we know, they often use physical violence, right? Physical protests. I mean, they, they aren't afraid to act out physically to defend their beliefs. Um, I would say that that's, it's, it's a very interesting subset of our society because that's very similar to what you see in ancient cultures that were in decline, ancient superpowers that were in decline. You'd have a subset, a different race, a different people, a different people group, again, different ethnicity, whatever you want to call these, these different subsets they would come into the superpower and start agitating it. And it's, it, if you look at it, put the phenomenon you're discussing together with what you were just saying, a lot of the people that are participating last summer in the, the BLM riots, they were s- students from the university that were listening to a bunch of people that just want to sit around and intellectualize. And then you, it turns into violent action. So you think, I mean, put the whole thing together, at the beginning of an empire, the people who are intellectualizing are supposed to instill some sort of virtue into, the, into their students. So when they go out, they live a particular way. But now it seems like the people that are sitting around intellectualizing, they instill violence and chaos. And, um, and then the other people at the university they're there for a paycheck, right? So whatever side you're on, whether you're on the, uh, the BLM woke side or you're the conservative side, you're somewhat part of the problem because you're not supposed to just go to college to make money, and you're definitely not supposed to college just go to college just so you can get mad. That, I mean, that's why people would think that the point of studying is to end up angry on the street is just completely beyond me. Now, we, we usually associate colleges and universities, um, first and foremost in the medieval era with uh, the Roman Empire uh, under the popes and then expanding into the British world and then the Americas when you know Britain ruled the world and then the United States is the world superpower. Uh, one other thing that Glove points out, though, is like, actually, uh, he's like, he, he was really shocked when he started studying all this is that he, he, because he was living in Jordan and he, almost his whole life studying the Arab people, um, it, it took him by surprise that he's in uh, the 11th century. Uh, the Arab empire, well, let me just read from Glub. He says in the, in the 11th century, the former Arab empire was in complete political decline, and it was ruled by the Seljuk sultan Malik Shah. The Arabs were now no longer soldiers, but they were still the intellectual leaders of the world. And during the reign of Malik Shah, the building of universities and colleges became a passion. Now, if you, if you go 250 years before Malik Shah, there were only a couple universities in this entire Arab kingdom. There's like one or two. Now... 250 years later, as their culture goes into decline, here's what Glub, Glub, Glub says. Where a, whereas a small number of universities had sufficed for years of the Arab glory, now, under Malik Shah, a university sprang up in every town. Is that wild? Because you don't really think of the Arab world as having universities in, having universities in every town over a thousand years ago. Uh, the same thing was going on in ancient Greece. The same thing was going on in ancient Rome. As the empires went into decline around 200 years, around 250 years, 
everyone became obsessed with intellectuality, with, with university. Now, it began also in the Arab world, just like America. It also started out with an obsession at, oh, well, we're going to go to college so we can make more money. And that then segued into, well, now it's all about intellectualism, which is interesting, John, because let's look at millennials for a sec. I, I think millennials became disillusioned with going to college to make lots of money. They saw, wow, I got this bachelor's degree. I was told my whole life that a bachelor's degree is about making lots of money and I'm not making 100 G's. And I think that now it has morphed into this new idea where millennials and younger people, now it's like, wow, we just have to think, 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 think. It's all about thinking. And, 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 And in the midst of this chaos of intellectualism, the ideas are just going all over the place. I can't even keep track of the latest trends in intellectual thought, you know, whether it's woke theory, gender theory. I mean, it changes every week. And I, I present to you the reason I think it's that intellectual ideas, crazy ideas, are changing so rapidly is because our society, just like the ancient Arab world, the ancient Greek world, and the ancient Rome world, is in cultural decline. And when a culture's in decline, they're obsessed with intellectual ideas on steroids more than more than they were 200 years prior well okay we keep using this word decline and so a lot of people it's kind of hard not to say that last year and this year but i mean people like you and i we've been saying that for much longer than for you know much longer than the last two years so like what do we mean by decline what isn't it couldn't it be that the intellectualism, if that's the right word, is just people trying to figure out what to do? Like, we have access to all the books, all the ideas, all the history, all the scholarship, all the science. It's all there at the university. Is it a bad thing that people are trying to think through all of this and trying to figure out, okay, what are our core principles, our core ideals? What do we really believe in? If we're going to act and we're going to live, well, like, how should we live, right? I mean, maybe maybe it's the case that if these patterns are right, it's a sign that we're never going to figure it out. Well, let, let me let me see if I can respond to that. I'm I'm going to read from Glob, and he talks about when the Mongols conquered Persia. Uh, this isn't ancient Persia of the Bible. This is, uh, you know, postdates that. He says. Uh, he says. Um, so after the intellectuals attained fresh triumphs in their academic fields in Persia, uh, along come the Mongols, and they conquer Persia in the 13th century. The Persians themselves, I'm sorry, the Mongols themselves were entirely uneducated, and they had to depend entirely on the Persians and the Persian officials to administer the country and to collect the revenue. So they. The Mongols come in, they're this barbarian people, according to Persian standards of the 13th century. They conquer Persia, but they're so uneducated, they can't even collect taxes from the Persian people. They have to keep all the Persian people in place in the government. Okay, you with me? Well, they retained as their wazir, or what we would call prime minister, a Rashid al-Din. And he was a historian of international repute, says Glub. Now, here, here's, here's the key here. Yet the prime minister, when speaking to the Mongol two, the Khan, he always had to remain on his knees at all times when speaking to the Mongol king. At state banquets, the prime minister stood behind the Khan, behind a seat to wait upon him. And if the Khan were in a good mood, he'd occasionally pass the old Persian prime minister a piece of food over his shoulder. So here is the intellectual giant of the Persian world. And he's literally the... <laughs> the okay. And, and now, what, what's the point of the story? Now, now, look at where we are right now in our society, right? I'm presenting this, this concept, this way of looking at America. I'm saying the millennials and all these people are obsessed with intellectualism. They're obsessed with ideas. 
on the conservative side of the equation. I'm saying they're obsessed with talking and thinking too. They're obsessed with reading their own books. There's different subsets of intellectuals, all reading books and thinking. Who's the current resident in the White House? (laughs) I mean, I don't want to name him, but there seems to be universal agreement that the guy isn't even all there mentally. Well, Kamala, she's taking care of it, right? <laughs> but we, we've, we've descended into such a state of chaos that like, like just this Mongol king who he couldn't even, he, he couldn't even do math un- well enough to tax the people under him. He needed all the other people to keep running things. But you essentially had a barbarian on the throne and the intellectuals, his cupbearer. Well, I, the resident, I don't think his problem is barbarism. I think it's that he's a bit too old. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah I, I don't know. I mean, well, but it, it sounds like you have a bunch of, uh, quote, weak men. So we talked about those Romans at the beginning, and they were very strong men. But they also did a lot of evil things, raping and pillaging and so on and so forth. Things that we as a, a advanced civilization and imperial society would say, no, you can't rape and pillage. That's wrong. Uh, like, some people are saying that you should, well, we need to become strong men again. There's a lot of people that are moving out to the mountains. They're heading out to Idaho. They're buying mountain property. They're, they're, so, so shopping they're shopping wood. They're, they're buying they're, guns. They're retreating, create, creating larger defense networks. See, see, that's exactly what Glub would say is a sign of the end of an empire. Let me go on and give another example from Glub, uh, the Byzantine Empire. Uh, in the 14th century, he says the weakening uh, Byzantine Empire was threatened and then it was dominated by the Ottoman Turks, the Ottoman Empire, or from Turkey. He says the situation was so serious that one would have expected every subject of Byzantium to abandon their personal interest and to stand with his compatriots in a last desperate defense to save their country. No, the reverse occurred. So, so let, me, let me put it in my words now. The Turks have invaded Byzantium. I mean, they're on the verge of total annihilation. The Byzantine Empire, the great, the great city. I mean, I've read so many books about the beauty of Byzantium and the awesomeness of that city and the country. The Turks come in, they're, they're about to literally annihilate it. And instead of the intellectual people, and that's what he says is that is intellectual uh, uh, acumen had risen in Byzantium at this period, instead of the people saying, oh my gosh, we're about to be wiped out, so we need to band together and in and, and, and one last great hurrah defend our country, that's not what happens. Instead, the, Byz- the Byzantines spent the last 50 years of their history fighting one another in repeated civil wars until the Ottoman moved in and administered the final coup de grace. That is where we are in America. Two, we have all of these competing factors going on in this culture. People bickering, people are, you've got other groups of people, like you said, they're running off to the country to hide. They're building their defenses bigger. That's not what the ancient Romans did in the, when they were a great world power. They didn't build tall walls. They weren't afraid of their enemies. They didn't go and hide in the mountains. And there's also an interesting analogy with the Old Testament, because the Old Testament has all these prophecies at, about the end of an age, when cultures go into decline, when a great tragedy is happening to a country. And the prophets often say, woe is you if you're alive at that time. Woe is you if you're pregnant when this is happening. Woe is you because a lot of you are going to run to the mountains to hide. And now as Christians, we don't have to be afraid when a culture goes in decline. I, I was um, in many conversations last year in 2020 with people. Uh, they're like, well, where are you, you're going to move out of the communist north. Where are you going to go to? And, and a number of people were flat out arguing with me that I should go to middle of nowhere places. 
And I don't believe as Christians we're called to do that. I have no fear of communists. I have no fear of totalitarians. I have no fear of these things. I still felt like I should be in a place connected to humanity because as a Christian, one of my main responsibilities is apologetics to tell people about Christ. What I had realized though was by living in the North where I was, I couldn't talk to anyone about Christ because everyone had been banned from talking to each other in public. <laughs> it was crazy. Is that, where's that in the paper? Is there a big <laughs> section about that when you get put under house arrest? <laughs> so, so yeah, I mean, um, uh, I'm summarizing a lot. I'm jumping around in 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 Glub's article. You know, the, uh, the, again, titled "Fate of Empires in Search uh, for Survival" by Sir John Glub. It's an easy read. It's it's not highfalutin language. Um, it's it's he he was a very humble man. He was a very amazing man. Uh, in the life he led. Um, and I I think there's a lot of analogies between, uh world superpowers now and in the past and and if i could in, if i could sort of summarize them i think in the beginning it's very clear that world superpowers they're not as con- concerned with being defensive they're not as concerned with with the highest levels of intellectualism and philosophy uh they're not as concerned with um uh and 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 sometimes these aren't a good thing because I, I, another thing is they're not always concerned about foreign people and mistreating people. I mean they they tend to march all over people and as a Christian we don't want to do that. Um I'm not justifying uh the things America did in its beginning. I'm not justifying the things Great Britain did in its beginning or or Rome or Persia. More observing, more just making observations that it seems as though we are a nation at the end of its line. Now, we also can learn from history that when a superpower comes to its last stages of being a superpower, they don't always cease to exist. Now, some do. They usually don't. Yeah. They, they stick around and so, yeah, the American people will endure, that's for sure, but what that will look like. And we don't even know... I mean, I've read, I don't know, maybe 10 authors that come up with a little system of historical patterns, and none of them are exactly right. So, I mean, hopefully you're not listening to this and thinking that we're doomsayers and the end is nigh and you're all, you're all going to be destroyed by, I don't know whom. See, the problem is that usually when an empire collapses, uh, there's another empire to take their place. So, like, when Rome collapsed, though, there was really no other empire in the West to take, take its place, and that's why we fell into this thing we call the Dark Ages, because it was just total chaos for several hundred years, really until Charlemagne started building his empire. So, is that really... That seems kind of far-fetched, that... Because there's really nobody to take our place. We're... I mean, unless you think that we're going to be occupied by China, which seems kind of crazy. I don't know that the the next superpower always has to occupy the previous superpower either, because sometimes they just cease to be a superpower, but they're not, like, physically occupied. Well, but in all the examples you gave, there was another empire knocking on the door. So the Mongols in Persia... Or the Ottoman Turks and Byzantine. Well, we have. I mean, if you're if you're asking an explicit question again, this isn't my personal opinion. It would just be an observation. I mean, we do have we have the new empire of China knocking on our door. I mean, you can't pick up the newspapers without articles about China us, us, uh, passing us by financially. And China seems to be at a new stage in their in their um, history because their previous uh, empire came to a close in the 1950s um, when Mao conquered the last remaining of the royalty and declared a new empire. So, so China really in this new stage it's in 
has only been around for 60, 70 years. I think I just read that the Communist Chinese Party is celebrating their 100th anniversary. Yeah. They were around for a while before they took over China. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, so they've been around for 100 years. But when I read about the state they're in, because of this one-child policy, they've created an army of what people in the East call... Uh, well, they did end... They did little end, emperors? They, they did. They did end that a long time ago. I think they ended that over a decade ago. Well, that's the point. But the people that are of age now to fight are all the one child of that policy. Gotcha. So yeah, gotcha. so the ones, the children, the, the second and third children that are being born now are still children. Yeah. So, I mean, I wonder... You, you also have the Empire of Russia, which, again, they're in, in, they're in a much earlier age than we are as a country um, because the, uh, the, the monarchy was overthrown in the beginning of the 20th century, so a little over 100 years ago. Uh, and... And Russia seems to, while they're not flat out uh, Russian communists of 1960s, the person leading their country seems to be connected to it. See, the thing is, we used our intellectualism not just to sit around and talk about critical race theory or the Constitution or whatever these debates are that we have, but we used it to build incredible weapons. And... So I, I, I don't know if it's like the same situation because we still are vastly technologically superior to the Chinese. Well, we have, well, th- th- I mean, if, if, if we, I don't want to get too into politics, but we do know that um, there's been many people in our government giving all of our technology and weapons to all these other nations. So yeah, but do they know how to use them? I think they do. I mean, we don't have a stranglehold on the weapons. I mean, we've been giving them our uranium and we've been giving them our technology for many, many decades. So I, I, but I don't, I, I think we might be getting no, caught, I don't, caught I'm up not in the weeds to get into a little politics. bit. Yeah. I just mean the, the overall situation where if, I, I think a certain, side I, I think, would... I think here, here, I think this is the analogy that I, I see. So if you look at the founding fathers who were all, um, pretty well read. They were all, you know, students of philosophy, Greek philosophy. They all read the the Bible, biblical theology. They were all men of action. And so you look at you look at um, Alexander Hamilton and and uh, Jefferson and Bunyan or Bunyan, I'm sorry, <laughs> and Washington. And you look at these people. Um, we don't. F- the first thing that comes to mind is not ivory tower philosophers. That's not the first thing that comes to mind. The first thing that comes to mind are radical, rebellious generals, people putting their life on the line. If we don't all hang together, we'll definitely hang separately, you know, things like that. The midnight ride of Paul Revere. Yet, yet these people were actually great writers, just like King David. I mean, King David, one of the greatest poets, if not the greatest poet of all time. And yet, to his people, he was first and foremost a great warrior. And what's, what I see in our day, on the left and the right and the middle, is a bunch of ivory tower thinkers who are not like King David, who are not like George Washington. They're not warriors. They're not men of action. But in their heads, they're all delusional. They think they're like King David. They think they're like George Washington. But actually, the only people who are actually men or women of action in our society are what I would say are BLM, Antifa. I mean, those are the people, those are the only people that I seem to be doing anything remotely physical. I'm not defending what they're doing. I'm just merely making an observation that everyone else seems to be full of it. They're all living fanciful ideas in their head. They're not who they think they are. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that. Yeah, there's, well, this is, if there's something called conservatism in the country, it's losing terribly, right? So if, if, we're, if you're sitting around thinking, you know, here we go, thinking, right, that we're going to revive the republic and defeat BLM or whatever the kind of things conservatives say, I think you're right that sitting around talking about it isn't going to do anything. So something needs to happen. There has to be practical decisions made and carried out by someone at some point. And so is that, I, I mean, can we do that? Is it, I mean, are everything you've been saying so far seems very fatalistic. Like, okay, here's the pattern. 
you're you're doomed to the pattern more or less right um but i mean couldn't we band together and and like realize what's going on and say okay we there's a crisis it's hard to say who's right and who's wrong because everyone seems so wrong let's figure out what we need to do and do it i couldn't we couldn't we do that you're sure you're saying where's the hope yeah but like a very practical hope like a hope where we sit down and we we use our intellects to actually formulate actions and ways to live rather than just uh formulate more ideas on top of ideas on top of ideas and post them on youtube or what have you i think the best way to respond to that um I don't have I don't have them in front of me, but I I wrote some some fairly comprehensive treatise on this on this particular subject. Uh, I think I put it in in my work, uh, mere discipleship or mere mere religion, one or the two or both. And it starts with an observation, and it and it was an obs- it was one of my first major observations as a ten eleven year old. Um, I hadn't I wasn't quite thirteen or fourteen yet. Um, I was getting there. And I observed when I would go to different friends' houses from church, uh, and when I would also visit friends' houses who went, who their families went to different churches, not just to, that weren't a, they weren't a part of our church too. But I noticed that every family unit, a great majority of them, all thought that they were the real Christian family unit. And I know this seems like it's not connected to what you were asking, where's the hope, but I beg everyone's pardon, stick with me here. And it was really interesting that I'd go over my friend Jeff's house, my friend Chris's house, my friend Wes's house, and, and each family unit, the parents, the children, they thought they were the real McCoy, the real Christian, and that everyone else needed to be like them. And... This way of thinking, it, it sort of transcends just individual family units who think they're the real Christian. It also applies to churches. I started visiting churches as I got older. Baptist church, Lutheran church, this parish over here, this parish over there. And nine times out of ten, each individual local congregation thought they were the real, authentic form of Christianity that they were the real McCoy. Then I, I, I'm getting a little bit older. Then I went from college to college. I started lecturing at colleges. I visited friends. I would, I'd go spend, when I was 17, 18, I'd go spend the weekend at Friends College. I remember spending the weekend at Hillsdale. My friend was attending there, and I visited a few others. And, and, and the same phenomenon would happen there, is that the people at that college all thought, well, we're the authentic college. We're the real college. We're the real university. This, this, this way of thinking applied in all these different ways, these different subsets, these different groups, they all think they're the real McCoy. Then I remember going to book groups when I was in my, my teen years too. There would be book studies at different uh, coffee shops in the 1990s. And I'd go to the Philosopher's Guild over here and the Inklings group over here after C.S. Lewis. And even in these book groups, and they're just, you know, this book group is discussing J.R. Tolkien and this book over here that I went to, they're discussing Plato. And, and I'd, I'd go to these things and, and I was only 15, 16, 17, 18 years old. And each of these book groups, they all thought they were the real McCoys. They all thought they were the real authentic philosophers or thinkers or readers. And, and, and this, then, then I got into politics and the same thing happened in politics. I hung out with Republicans. And the Republicans in this county or in the Republicans in this district or the Democrats over here. I, I worked for Republicans and Democrats. Everyone thought they were the real political party. They were the authentic, good, moral, the greatest party that would affect the greatest change. If everyone could be like them, things would be all right. And, and I, I couldn't help but begin seeing this everywhere I went. And then I went to the Bible. And then I went to the message of Christ. And it didn't seem like the Christians were being taught by Christ to think this way at all. It was quite the opposite. Christ was just pointing out all their sins and all their failings. Peter's screwing up everywhere you turn. Peter keeps his foot in his mouth. Heck, he cuts off a guy's ear. 
I mean, the, the, the early, the, they're, just, they're just mortal men who are failing. And, and Christ is saying a radical message. Who, not you guys are a special group because you're the authentic ones. He says, whoever is the least among you is the greatest. And I began wondering, all these Christians and these book clubs and these political parties and these colleges and these universities I attended, aren't they a lot like the disciples who went to Jesus saying, who will get to sit on your right hand? Which of us is the most special? Which of us is the greatest? And Christ says, hey, you shouldn't think that way because that's not what I want a follower of Christ to be like. And, and I really think that the prophet Micah really sums it up. Our hope is to love justice, to walk humbly, to worship God. It's a, it's a very simple formula. The hope is, well, we should live our lives. We should go to Mass. We should worship God. We should live in community, koinonia. We shouldn't think that, that there's one political answer. I really get upset when I have to listen to people lecture me on the greatest political view. You and I were privy to a dialogue with someone. He thinks that the Bible teaches only one form of politics. I don't know what to do with conversations like that because if I was living in ancient Rome, I would do what Jesus did. Give unto Caesar what is Caesar. If I lived in, under, uh, under King George in Great Britain, if I was in Liverpool, I'd, well, it's the king. What am I going to do? I'm, just, it's, I'm in a monarchy. I'm not obsessed with politics like that I really think the answer is to live a humble, just, obedient life and live in fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And it sounds kind of boring, but it's not. Because the, the, the early Christians who did this in Rome, them just taking care of the poor, taking care of the widows in their distress, feeding each other, making sure there's no needs among each other, they were poor Christians who just got up in the morning, got their shit done every day, what they had to get done, and eventually it led to changing the whole Roman Empire. It led to Christianity spreading everywhere. So it sounds like what you're saying is if people think there's something going wrong, the first thing they should do is go look in the mirror or something. They should stop and say, wait, well, I'm not perfect. And I, most of the people I know, it doesn't seem like in 2021 their lives are going that well. I know a few people that, you know, everything's going great. But, it, yeah, it sounds like the first step is to recognize that whether it's my denomination, my political philosophy, or my political party, or my family, or my social clique, or what have you, we're doing something wrong, and in many cases, probably something profoundly wrong. And so that might be a good groundwork for any sort of improvement or any sort of hope for our, our fair republic. Does that, that sound? I, I, lo- I love that whole thing, though. It was, uh, that was Kenny's Apology. <laughs> if you ever read Plato, Socrates' <laughs> Apology, it's a work of Plato. And uh, yeah, that was Kenny's Apology. So someone. I hope someone writes that down. Uh, like <laughs> well, that and... more than welcome to read my book, uh, Mere Discipleship, available on Amazon, yeah. Barnes & Noble, all, That's the, right. all, yeah. all, the, all the booksellers that ban <laughs> a lot of Christians. Yeah, what do we do? We got to start hawking your books. They're pretty good books. I, I've read them all. And yeah, just uh, yeah, go, read, go read Kenny's books. You know, they're pretty good. <laughs> well, I, I, I don't think they're that great. I'd, I'd encourage people to read C.S. Lewis first and... Uh, uh, I think he, uh, if, if you only have time to read, you know, read, read mere Christianity, read the, what is it? The great divorce or grief observed, or, I mean, uh, C.S. Lewis is an amazing writer and I think he's a great place to start. Um, 
but yeah, I, I think I think there is hope. I mean, the Bible says Paul is it Paul who says be always ready to to give a reason for the hope that lies within us. Um, there's always hope, but I, I think that we forget that the early Christians who really were the shiznit, you know, they were they were the people. But we don't have their like we have writings of Tertullian and Irenaeus and uh, you know a number of people from the early first first couple hundred years. But the vast majority of those Christians were just, you know, humble people, parents, mothers and fathers, sisters and brothers, just living together in community, just trying to survive, go to work every day. When, there was, when they saw needs, they, they tried to address those needs the best they could. They tried to help people. Um, and they were living in a very wicked culture. They were living in Rome, and it was not a very fun place to be if you were a Christian. Isn't it, don't we sort of stand in a different situation though? Because we, this was in some way, shape or form, an Amer- a Christian culture. All the founders, they assumed that Christianity would be the religion of America. And that's why their project would work. Because the constitution, it doesn't elaborate a lot of rights and responsibilities. So like, it gives you some rights. But it doesn't tell you who you have to take care of, how you have to take care of them, who to love, whom to uh, maybe stay away from, et cetera, et cetera. It doesn't enumerate those things. So, like, those things came from Christianity. So is there a certain sense where if we, we can look at our culture and say, well, we have to redeem the culture. We have to act in such a way that it moves the culture back towards Christianity or the catastrophe is going to be even bigger than Rome? Well, I definitely don't think every world superpower throughout history is identical to the next. So there's, there's never going to be apples to apples comparisons. We're, we're all, ultimately, we're looking at very general concepts. Um, I think it's a very generalized statement that the typical empire lasts 250 years. It's not a, it's not a scientific statement. So I think, it's, I, think, I think the problem is by even stating uh, the number 250, uh, a typical empire lasts about 250 years, by using something of number, it, it sort of builds up in our mind a concept of science or positive, positivistic science. And, that, and that's not really how I think of any of this. Um, as far as to what you said, there's a lot of truth to that because even the agnostic Benjamin Franklin um, said, lest, lest the Lord build the house, they that labor, labor in vain, you know, quoting the Bible. And in his great soliloquy during the Constitutional Convention, uh, when everyone was disagreeing, Franklin stood up and at the time, I think he was 84, 85 years old, he's an old man, and they all knew he was not a Christian. Uh, but it was, it was such a contentious time, they, they were about to disband the constitutional convention and the constitution was not going to get signed or or drafted and it was franklin the agnostic who stood up in the assembly and appealed to them to all turn to god and he appealed to them that hey you know we only beat great britain because of the sovereign hand of god he says there he says i can see that god moved the heavens to allow us to win battles um so i I, i'm calling him agnostic he self-identified as agnostic but even in his old age he seemed to begin thinking that God was building the nation of America. So I agree with, with your premise that you said a moment ago, but ultimately, reg- I would say regardless of how the nation came into existence, uh, we still as Christians are living in a time of cultural decline. When the, when the, when the, the third part of Rome took place, you know, the, sort of the third empire of Rome, with the advent of Constantine. All right, so now Rome is in its third, <laughs> third empire. It went into decline two other times, <laughs> rose out of the ashes. Constantine make, you know, designates it a Christian nation. It didn't prevent it from going in decline either. We know what happened there. Paganism came right back, infused within culture, and Rome went into decline. That's sort of what's happening in America. You know, we, we started with certain Christian principles, paganism infused within our society, and we're, we're in steep decline. Um, if, if I have any message uh, beyond the prophet Micah, uh, my message would be rethink hiding. If you're a Christian, 
it's one thing to be wise as a serpent, you know, and if you have a family and children, you want to be in a safe place. You know, those are important things as a Christian. But I would question if we're called to hide. I would question if we're called to go into the wilderness all by ourselves because we have a hope that lies within us. And if we're hiding in the middle of nowhere, how can we share that hope with the world? Ultimately, we're called to disciple, right? That's the Great Commission, to go into the world and make disciples of all men. And if we hide while the culture is crumbling, who's going to make disciples? Who's going to tell people about the hope that the Logos, the Word made flesh, Jesus, is alive? Who? And so I, I've, I've been troubled in 2020 2021 to hear that a lot of Christians are starting to retreat even more than they already have. I would think this would be a time when Christians should start making art even more, real art. They should make movies, good movies. They should make music, good music. And you don't have to designate it a Christian movie. Just make a movie. Make a movie according to Christian principles and call it a movie, call it a film. Make music, make a song. You don't have to call it a Christian song. Make a song that glorifies God, whatever you write about. But you don't have to call it evangelical music, Catholic music. You don't have to do that. Just be a Christian who makes art. We need Christians to rise up and play the piano and instruments and compose music and draw and make paintings and draw and do figure study drawing. I mean, we need Christians to start rising up and making good art in the midst of cultural decline. Who, are, who, fearlessly, who fearlessly make art because they're doing so because the creator is the great artist. We make art because we've been made Imago Dei. We've been made in the image of God. God is the great creator, and we want to we imitate him. It's not a time to hide. It's an exciting time to be alive, John. Absolutely. <laughs> I think we're over time. As always, thanks for listening to Only the Penitential Pass podcast. Until next time, until we meet again, the best is yet to come.